See you do. Yeah. I walk past your office all the time and see you <laughs> squirreling away on that computer. <laughs> I'm sure you spend. This, um, this is my retirement of, job. Yeah. Hundreds of hours working for working for El Silvia. If anyone out there in El Silvia were listening, please give Mike a pay rise. <laughs> He's currently getting paid about fifty seven cents an hour. Right? Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, this week uh, we've, we've decided we're going to um, instigate a, a new thing which we're going to do which is a, a journal club and um, it's my pleasure to have with me this week uh, again Dr Matt Rutledge and uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Mike Pike who um, luckily uh, have been are available to sort of have a chat this afternoon. Um, so this week we thought we would make the, um, the journal club sort of dedicated to uh, IJOA, which is the International Journal of Obstetric Anesthesia, which um, Mike Pake has been involved with for a long time, and so I'm going to ask him a few questions about that in a minute. And I think, Matt, you've been involved as well, haven't you? I have, yeah. As a reviewer, yeah. Um, so, so before we kick off, uh, Mike, can, do you want to tell us a little bit of history about this journal and uh, uh, your involvement with it? Yeah, sure, Rog. Um, so this journal started in the early 1990s, so it's been around for a long time. Um, it was sort of initiated through um, a woman called Felicity Reynolds, who was quite a famous obstetric anaesthetist in the UK, and uh, then um, broadened its into the international sphere, and um, particularly got some Americans on board as well. Um, so it was initially largely a, a sort of UK, Europe, and American, but it, we've tried over the years to expand it into a global entity, and uh, certainly that has. Um, that has developed a lot. Um, I joined the editorial board in the mid-90s, a year or two after it started, and uh, then became the chief editor four years ago. Uh, So the journal uh, really took off once it managed to get into PubMed, and that was quite a difficult process. It took almost a decade to get Mm. it there. Oh, wow. And uh, once it did that, it it created, I guess, a presence around the world, and... It's been pretty well supported, and in the last three years, it's actually grown dramatically in terms of submissions. So there are now over six hundred submissions uh, per year, and that's doubled in the last three years. Wow! Um, interestingly enough, the impact factor fluctuates quite dramatically. So it's <laughs> it's been steady for a long time, and then it went up quite dramatically, and it's dropped back quite dramatically. So um, that largely depends, I think, on on highly quoted articles. Yeah. Um, but we traditionally have had mainly submissions from UK and the US um, uh, with smattering from the rest of the world, um, but now that's changed dramatically as well and, um, and now the largest contributor apart from the US is China um, and a lot more submissions from other parts of the world as well, uh, which is a good thing. Um so the journal is, um, it's uh, basically the journal of the Obstetric Anesthetist Association of the UK. It's got some affiliated societies um, and it's owned by the publisher, which is Elsevier, who's a massive publisher of journals. Yep. And uh, Matt has been on the editorial board as well for a number of years. 
And is it just a obstetric anesthesia, or is it, it also includes some submissions, including critical care related to obstetrics? And things yeah, like so the the remit is anything related to um, pregnancy in the peripartum period and critical care and physiology and perinatology as well. Yep. So, um, but we don't take gynaecology type articles basically yep. um, so okay. it has to be something related to to um, obstetrics and perinatal work yeah okay um and i guess we've got a bit of time what are, what are the current challenges you already mentioned that 600 submissions a year which uh, that's a challenge enough isn't it, it is, it's a, challenge. There's only, there's it's only a major challenge for the chief editor i can vouch for that <laughs> there's only, um there's only four. so there are four editors in total so yeah. there's myself who obviously my role is to overview all the submissions make sure that their governance and regulatory aspects are okay um, and uh, then I make decisions on about 20%, up to 25% of them um, yep. myself, and um, usually that's a rejection decision. <laughs> um, and then then the uh, remainder of the articles go out to the three other editors who then uh, seek reviewers, although occasionally they, they may also just do a review and, and make a decision and send that back to me. Um, but after the peer review process, which... Um, uh, interesting enough, is currently single-blinded, although some reviewers do uh, like to put their names on the bottom of their reviews, but normally we can see who the authors of the article are, but uh, we're just discussing yep. at the moment where we go to double-blind peer review where you don't know who the authors are. So that's quite an interesting yeah. bit uh, as well in, in uh, medical literature. Um, but, uh, yeah, they they get reviews and they ultimately um, make a decision. They're usually obviously revisions of the paper once, twice or more times. And then they pass that decision back to me and I sort of um, pass that back to the authors. Uh, and I obviously also deal with all the other issues in terms of personnel, publication, um, yep. proofreading, uh, those sort of things as well. And uh, just quickly, have you had any problems with fraud or plagiarism, that sort of thing? Uh, a little. Um, plagiarism is, is pretty much largely eliminated by the fact that every journal pretty much runs their articles through a plagiarism um, software. website software before they so I know immediately as soon as I, I can look that up immediately yep. um, and so something that clearly is, is unacceptable would be rejected up front um, others are obviously grey um, so plagiarism is usually manageable um, fraud is a little bit more difficult to uh, to pick up always but um, I've certainly picked up two or three papers uh, over the last year or so which um, were clearly had I think fraudulent data and then there's a process that you can go through through the Committee mm. of Publication Ethics to try and sort that out um, often it's not successful um, because it relies on either the authors responding or then you write to the authors institution and it relies on them responding and the ethics committee and them responding often the, in my experience so far that hasn't happened <laughs> yeah. so um, but um, yeah so there's still medical there's still fraud going on um, uh, we haven't got to the sophistication of journals like anesthesia who who actually do a statistical software program looking at the data of every single publication that has data in right. it um, to come up with a decision whether there might be fabricated data. Yeah. Um, that's based on the Carlisle work that, that he did. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's yeah. very difficult to make up random... Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Actual random stuff. That's right, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we're not that sophisticated. One of the things I've tried as a chief editor is to increase our... Um, 
statistical ex- expertise. We do have a statistical advisor that we've always had for a long time, but I'm trying to get more people with advanced statistical skills on the uh, board as well yeah. so that we can run more papers through. Yeah. All right, thanks for that insight. We've chewed up a bit of our um, discussion of article time, but that was actually a really <laughs> insight into all the work that you do. You know, I walk past your office all the time and see you squirrelling away on that computer. I'm sure you spend... This, um, this is my retirement of, job. Yeah. Hundreds of hours working for, working for Al Sylvia. If anyone out there in Al Sylvia world listening, please give Mike a pay rise. <laughs> He's currently getting paid about 57 cents an hour. I think. Yeah. All right. Matt, you, um, you've got uh, a paper that you, you were a reviewer uh, for, and um, so you sort of know this paper pretty well. Do you want to um, yeah, maybe summarise that? that one? Yeah, That's so... The article that um, I thought we would talk about is titled Rocuronium versus Succimethonium for Rapid Sequence Induction of General Anesthesia for Caesarean Section Influence on Neonatal Outcomes. And this paper was written by a group of Czech Republic uh, researchers, um, and the main author is Kosanova. Now, the reason I chose this one to discuss is, I guess, as obstetric anaesthetists, we're involved in both looking after the mother and the baby, and yep. we're probably a little bit more focused on the outcomes of the mother um, and less so perhaps on the baby. And certainly looking at the obstetric anaesthetic literature, there isn't much published on the influence of what we do on neonatal outcomes Yeah, for many reasons. Now, <clears throat> this is a big study. It looked at over 500 babies of mothers who were given either rocuronium or succimethonium as part of their general anaesthetic. Now, that in itself is a big number of general anaesthetics, and I'm yes. not sure if there's a study that has published that many patients in a, as a randomised controlled trial looking at neonatal outcomes. So this was a randomised controlled trial, was it? It was a randomised controlled So was this a standard uh, anaesthetic for elective caesareans? General so interestingly, it included elective and uh, emergency caesarean sec- sections. Yep. And... Um, I'll go straight to the money, shall I? And then it's worth yeah. talking about the backstory to this study yeah, because okay. there's, there's a few methodological um, issues that we, we work through and which I think is, is important to acknowledge. So um, 480 women were randomised to receive either one milligram per kilogram of rocuronium or one milligram per kilogram of succimethonium after propofol induction. And uh, neonatal outcomes were looked at. Now, the primary outcome in this study that we're reviewing um, was the um, number of um, babies with an APGAR score less than seven. So was there a difference in the incidence of a lower APGAR score? And the authors found that if you were in the rocuronium group, yep. um, then that was associated with lower one-minute APGAR scores compared with succimethonium. But importantly, it wasn't associated with lower APGAR scores at five minutes or ten minutes or any difference in umbilical artery pH. Okay. Now, the interesting thing about this study is this this grew from another study. So the same group of authors previously published in around about 2015, I think, in Anesthesia and Analgesia, the American Journal, a study that looked at the maternal outcomes of either rocuronium or succimethonium, um, looking at terms of intubation. Now, the primary outcome of that study was time to intubation. And they looked at it, about 240 women and found that rocuronium was non-inferior to succimethonium in terms of speed of intubating 
And they also found, obviously, a lot less myalgia in the rocuronium group because they weren't yeah. fasciculating. Now, the primary outcome was maternal, but as one of their secondary outcomes, they found that the babies in the rocuronium groups tended to have lower APGAR scores, or that rather there was a higher incidence of low APGAR scores right. um, at one and five minutes. Now, this was a secondary outcome, and the authors rightly say, well, this is a secondary outcome, the study wasn't powered for it, therefore more research is required. But what they then did was um, go back to their ethics committee and um, extended the initial s study that they were running yeah. and recruited another 240 patients, okay. did a post hoc power analysis to work out how many more patients they would need to look at the neonatal outcomes. And that culminated in over 500 babies being studied. Are you following me? Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm watching <laughs> the podcast. Uh, the listeners can't see my <laughs> body language. He's got his arms crossed. So he's nodding. <laughs> so it, it's, it's an interesting um, way of producing a study that now looks at a different outcome as yeah. its primary outcome um, rather than starting the study off from scratch and tweaking it so that you looked at things that were more relevant to the outcome that you're now studying, if that makes sense. Yes, yeah. But I guess economically it uh, saves a bit of money and time. But It uh, saves a lot of money but and time. Yeah. Methodologically <clears throat> and ethically, is it is it the right way to design yeah. a study? Now, interestingly, I mean, you think, um, I mean, this is a lot of patients being studied, you know, 480 yeah. I'd be interested Women. to know, like, does, is it their standard anaesthetic? Well, interestingly, the... Because uh, here, about 1% of mm. patients getting a so GA. It would take us about 400 years. <laughs> At least. <laughs> in this hospital to do a study. So that. I think the... Um, I think there were two or three hospitals where it yeah. took place and their cesarean section rate under GA was 55%, which is just, I think, I believe well, standard in that, in that part of the Czech Republic. Yeah. It's just, okay. That's interesting. That, that in itself is, is of interest to listeners. Yeah, that is interesting. We That's probably the most interesting thing about the whole study. <laughs> or, or your entire podcast series. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, so in, in parts of the world, um, not dissimilar to ours, we do things in a very different way. And, yeah. yeah. Um, outcomes aren't necessarily that different perhaps yes yeah. yep yeah interesting so so that in itself was a sort of methodological issue um but but so be it we were presented with a paper of of over 500 babies that had been studied having a randomized controlled um uh, intervention and um, the finding was that the apgar score of those exposed to rocuronium was lower just at one minute, but there was yeah. no difference. Importantly, at five minutes, ten minutes, or um, in any other marker of neonatal outcome. But of course, they weren't really looking that hard for neonatal outcome. So we don't even know which parts of the APGAR score were more more affected, perhaps than, okay. than others. So, so um, can I ask you, Matt, if you're going to intubate someone for a GA Caesar tomorrow morning, are you going to use succinyl or rock your own? <laughs> And has it, has it been changed in any way whatsoever by this paper? <laughs> or, I don't or the my, one before? <laughs> I don't think my practice um, has changed. I'm, I mean, I, it's probably worth thinking about why, why is this finding there? Yeah. And, and there's probably many reasons that might explain this. So going straight to the, the, the chase, was this related to the rocuronium? Yep. Number one. 
Um, and I don't think there's necessarily strong evidence to suggest that. No. Yeah, because no. the editor-in-chief is shaking is his there head. Any, yeah. Is there any <coughs> evidence that much of either of those two drugs cross the placenta? Not pharmacologically. So, I mean... No. There hasn't been a huge amount of studies on this. And Do you have to uh, wait longer to intubate the rocuronium patient? So therefore their CO, the mother maternal CO2 well, is higher or there's some sort of metabolic change in the fetus from the... So hyper, when you look, look at the, uh, the time from um, induction to intubation, it is longer in the study in the rocuronium group. It didn't reach significance, but it was about three seconds longer. And the time from intubation or rather induction to cord clamping, so that's the time of exposure of the baby. Yep. was longer, though again, not significantly so in the rocuronium group. So okay. you're absolutely right. Was this just due to a longer period of general anaesthesia? Yeah. Um, was this simply a type 1 error from an underpowered study? Yeah. So I guess if the general anaesthesia is longer, then they get more propofol and sevoflurane maybe. Oh. And the fact that they were, mm. the, um, the APGALs were the same at 5 yeah. and 10 yep. minutes. Um, I mean, going back to transplacental passage of rocuronium, there isn't actually a huge amount of data on it, but the one would think there isn't much transplacental passage because muscle relaxants are poorly yeah. lipid soluble, <coughs> big, That's what we highly taught, ionized. Mm. Yeah, we were taught that, but I, I don't know. Um, I guess someone must have done some studies. There but are some studies, but relatively yeah. limited studies. Yeah. And the only study that's been done on rocuronium, to my knowledge, is, was looking at a much smaller dose of yeah. 0.6 milligrams per kilogram. Um, uh, but even you know at that dose, there wasn't a significant um, amount of passage, but there was some passages there is in all studies. But... Mm. The fact that the babies were no different after five minutes, um, and also the APGAL score is a subjective measure as yep. well, and in the absence of knowing which bits of the APGAL score were affected, um, it's hard to know how reliable the conclusion that this was a rocuronium effect mm. is. I but interesting all the same. Sure. Yeah, I guess the fact that um, at five minutes and further on, you know, they're all the same, it's, it's reassuring that actually probably doesn't, there's not a huge difference, and if you choose one or the other, it's reassuring that you can use both. Hmm. Is that is that your conclusion? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think it's it? unlikely that it was the rocuronium, and, and there are other reasons whether it's yeah, yeah. as Matt has said. But um, I mean, I think it's we've now got a second option, which is perfectly reasonable, as Roger's yeah. saying. So, in some circumstances, you know, you might definitely want to choose rocuronium rather than saxamethonium, um, yep. which you know, which gives us a new option. So that that's good to know. Yeah, that is good. Yeah, I think so. When when you go back to the first study, um, which again I think was probably adequately powered and well conducted, you know, uh, the finding was that rocuronium was non-inferior to saxamethonium in terms of time to intubation, ease of intubation. In fact, there may even have been some benefits to rocuronium in terms of ease of intubation, and uh, certainly re- re- um, associated with a lot less rate of myalgia, which can yeah. be troubling to patients. Yep. Yeah. And so I haven't answered your question at all, Roger, about what I'm <laughs> You probably just use what you've, you you were taught when you were yeah. a first-year trainee. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, Mike, you've got a paper for us. Do you wanna, uh, you've got okay. two papers. Do you want to give us one and then I'll yeah, sure. we'll alternate? The first one's fairly, fairly brief. Um, this one also comes from, uh, this comes from Ajoa. Um So this was a um, study related to the use of carbohydrate drink preoperatively as part of an enhanced recovery after surgery or enhanced recovery after caesarean um, protocol, um, which, uh, you know, uh, those protocols are being widely used and they're a bundle of different things and carbohydrate drinks have seemed to become one of the more popular things to do because it's relatively easy. Um, And it's a study that came from um, the Coombe Hospital in Dublin 
and we there is reasonable evidence that carbohydrate drinks beforehand um, reduce patients' hunger and, and nausea afterwards, yeah. and um, there may be some other benefits in terms of reducing insulin resistance and its effects on recovery as well. Uh, so these authors asked... Um, what's the gastric emptying of 400 mils of um, carbohydrate drink before an elective caesarean section under an interaxial block. And um, they used gastric ultrasound as the means of having a look at it. Um, and so they did gastric ultrasounds every 20 minutes after giving these um, preoperative patients the drink of 400 mils at yep. a sample size of 40. And they looked at um, uh, the antral cross-sectional area is one of the um, outcomes uh, measures and I think all the pearless grading as well which also looks at how much gastric content you can see in the antrum um, and that's a grading score uh, and they uh, basically showed that um, by 100 minutes after the drink um, the pearless scores were very low and the baseline um, cross-sectional area of the antrum was the same uh, sorry the cross-sectional area of the antrum was the same as it had been prior to the drink so they were fairly confident that um, you could drink 400 mils of, of carbohydrate drink and, and it's pretty much gone by 100 minutes so um, that's consistent with what we know from drinking water as well in uh, non-pregnant yep. patients um, and drinking 300 mils of water in a pregnant patient as well, which has previously also been shown to, to largely appear to pass through the stomach in 60 minutes. Um, so we do know that higher caloric drinks do have a slower gastric emptying, so there was a reasonable rationale for doing this study, mm. and it is what's used in the bundles. Um, so basically it's reassuring that um, you can give someone a pretty substantial volume of of carbohydrate drink, and two hours later, you could be you can pretty be pretty certain that that's yeah. all gone. That's pre that's pretty reassuring. So 100 minutes. So 100 minutes is about the time it takes for me to send for a patient for them to come <laughs> to come over from day surgery, for me to struggle for 40 minutes, for the spinal to fail, and then have to do a GA, and, and hopefully by that safe. by that time the carbohydrate drink's gone. That's good. Yeah, sounds sounds right. pretty safe. Yeah. Very reassuring. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Yeah. No, that's it. Um, so that, as usual, is reassuring, isn't it? We're, and we're routinely letting women drink 50 mils an hour before their caesareans mm -hmm. now, aren't we? Because um, often you know, we have these uh, women coming in for caesareans and they used to sit around with no food or water and by the time they came over in the afternoon when the list was running late because we'd been interrupted by lots of emergencies, mm -hmm. they were all dehydrated and grumpy and hypoglycemic. Mm. But we don't give them... It's just clear water, though, that we're allowing just them. Just clear water at the moment, but... Yeah. <coughs> Maybe we need to look into this. There's probably no reason we couldn't give them 50 mm. mils of, um, of um, carbohydrate drink of some sort. Because huh. I, th I think there is some evidence that by taking oral fluids, you actually can keep your stomach empty, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. you, yeah. you, you're, you're more likely, your, your stomach's more likely to you know, have higher residual volumes. Because it contracts, doesn't it? So therefore it's going to um, empty the things that it's secreting as well, mm. I suppose. Although they're all getting... Um, I was going to say renitidine, but they're not. They're getting famotidine now, aren't they? But they're all getting uh, an H2 antagonist. My yeah. presumably sort of patients that were excluded in this, or women that were excluded, obesity and um, were they were they included in the study? Uh, no, they did have yeah certainly or diabetics. What yeah, about, di um, they, they excluded those who might have delayed gastric emptying, diabetics, morbidly obese. Um, 
I can't think what else on the top of my head, but yeah, yeah. So they were, they were basically healthy, um, not not morbidly obese, uh, elective cases. Mm. All right, that's great. The ch- the study I've chosen, uh, we'll move, um, we'll move on to, is one that um, just caught my eye from the last episode, uh, not episode, um, edition, public uh, publication, what volumes, <laughs> volume uh, of IJO, I think uh, back in February. Um, uh, Graham and I did a podcast, I think it was last year, on neurological deficits, uh, uh, peripartum neurological deficits. So um, we talked about this, and I just, I just like this paper because it's just sort of uh, uh, reinforces all the other pr- um, observational studies that have been been published looking at lower limb neurologic deficit after vaginal deliveries. Um, so this one is a uh, observational study from Lille, which is a uh, city in northern France, sort of up near the border near Belgium. Uh, in a hospital level three uh, tertiary um, obstetric unit doing about five and a half thousand deliveries a year which is pretty similar to us and they did a prospective um, study where they collected data over three years um, on all women who had a vaginal delivery so they're not that so that included instrumental deliveries uh, but they didn't look at women who had a delivery in theater uh, cesarean deliveries and they just wanted to look at the incidents and then prospectively follow them up to see what happens uh, if they had a, a lower limb neurological deficit. And basically over that time they had 10,500 women who had um, vaginal deliveries, 33 of whom were identified as having a um, neurological deficit. Um, so that gives you an incidence of about 0.3%, uh, which is very similar to uh, other previous prospective studies looking at this. Um, they only they could only find 31 of them to follow up, so that's that's a pretty good figure when you're trying to follow up people. With, and, and only lost two. Uh, most of them, most of the deficits were in the femoral nerve region, of, over 80 percent. Uh, interesting. Other some other interesting figures that I read were that 90 um, percent of the women who had a lower limb neurological deficit had had epidural analgesia, uh, but I couldn't see what their overall ep- epidural analgesic rate was, I think it was over 50% though. Uh, and interestingly again, uh, 70% had an instrumental delivery, which has um, been shown to be strongly associated with these sorts of things in the past as well. Um, so the discussion was again, uh, they talked about the, the mechanism, and mo- the huge majority of these, the mechanism is thought to be some compression and stretching of the, neuro- of the ne- neurological um, structures in the uh, lower half of the body. Uh, during delivery and um, the presumed mechanism uh, of injury is that they become ischemic when they're stretched or compressed and they get you know, loss of axonal um, uh, myelin and things like that and demyelinate and, and sometimes it takes quite a while for these to regenerate and return to normal function. So reassuringly 70% of them had normal function again after six weeks. 11% though still had some deficit after one year and one of the 33, uh, 31 women they followed up had like a sensory deficit in, in uh, the all of her right leg, which lasted for three and a half years. So that was quite a long time. Um, and yeah, basically they came to the same conclusions as uh, previous studies looking at this, that um, you know, um, it's important to be well aware of uh, this as an issue and to remember that when women, especially when women have epidural analgesia and they're in uh, in the second stage of labour, and the, uh, to to you know, try and change positions and 
and uh, consider the fact that um, you know um, you know long second stages and in, uh, instrumental deliveries are uh, strongly associated with it. So be careful with your positioning of their legs and and don't hyperflex hyperflex or hyperextend the legs and um, yeah keep your eye out for it afterwards. This. Some, oh, I think some degree of neurological deficit is always going to occur. So it's probably un, uh, unavoidable. Yeah, we did a similar audit. Um, uh, well, prospective small prospective study wasn't as big as this one uh, about three or four years ago, which was published, um, and we found this is exactly the same instance actually. So that 0.3 percent is pretty much identical. These, um, and they were all minor um, short-term deficits. We didn't have. Uh, as extensive follow-up as that, um, and a lot of them were either lumbosacral trunk or or to femoral. Um, vast majority are sensory, obviously very few are motor. Yeah. Um, and uh, the vast majority get better quickly, usually in days, but occasionally weeks, and so on. I don't think we had any long-term ones in that, but we only had about 800 in our sample. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that's. Yeah, all the all the studies show that that's about the rates you're going to get with um, with obstetrics, basically. And you, yep. <laughs> if you, you have an instrumental <laughs> delivery under an epidural, that's the way I'd like to have it um, as well. Um, and uh, yeah, so obviously there's plenty of selection bias in terms of epidurals. Most of the studies actually show that, well, suggest that the epidural really has no relationship to the, most of the injuries. So no. they're, they're basically obstetric and epidurals just. Uh, and associated That's right. If, you, if you're having a long, prolonged, painful delivery, you're more likely to be asking for an epidural. Exactly. Um, so you've got to remember this is observational. You know, if, if your baby's stuck in your birth canal and you need an instrumental delivery and it's all taking a long time, it's, it's highly likely that you're more likely to ask for it. Um, all right, you've got one more paper for us, Mike. And then we'll oh, yeah, I can give you know if you want me to. Yeah, why not? <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's so hard to get everyone together. This is, this is one which um, is a bit different, but it, it's something that I... Um, I've always found a little bit um, concerning, and it's related to penicillin allergy. Um, and so this study also came from Lille in France, um, and it was done by a group of epidemiologists, allergists, and, and, and anaesthetists. And it was actually just about an education program about um, how staff chose which antibiotic to give to someone who said they had a penicillin allergy. So the question was, can an inter- uh, educational intervention increase the appropriate use of antibiotic therapy? And the issue is that um, 5 to 10% of adults report that they have a penicillin allergy, but um, it's been shown that up to 90% of them can actually safely receive penicillin, despite the fact they think right. they've got an allergy. Um, and therefore, there are, but many of them are, are given other antibiotics, which either are less effective or uh, the potential to cause other um, issues, side effects, um, and long-term, even long-term effects. Um, and so uh, a lot of these patients get given a kefazolin, for example, a kefasporin instead. Um, there's a convincing um, uh, evidence of, of penicillin allergy, and that's probably appropriate because there's a, in the discussion they quote a very large study of 66,000 patients who... Uh, were said to have penicillin allergy, who um, were given um, kefazolin instead, and there were only three cases in 66,000 of allergy to the kefazolin. Yep. So okay. the cross-reactivity we know is is being overstated, and it's um, t- 
to those second and third generation cephalosporins. So the risk of, of having a reaction is very, very low in that setting. Anyway, what they did in this study was they, um, first of all, they, they standardised a protocol of penicillin allergy and rated it as either zero where the patient had just described symptoms with penicillin, like felt sick, I got sick. Um, one, that it was unlikely they were allergic. Um, you know, they had a rash, you know, five hours later. Um, and those they gave... Um, so the, the ones that just had symptoms, they gave them all penicillin. They suggested that should be done. Well, that was their suggestion in this um, classification. Uh, if they said they thought it was unlikely, they gave them a cephalosporin instead, cephalosporin. And if they thought it was likely, obviously they didn't give them any beta-lactam. And then they, um, so they sort of uh, ran an education program, both verbally and written, to the staff, showing them this suggested protocol of rating the, yep. the patient's uh, description. And then they did a pre and post prescribing and looked at what happened and um, obviously the, um, they had about a 5% rate of, of reported penicillin allergy and about 1,000 um, patients in the pre and post cohorts and um, appropriate treatment went up dramatically from 17% to 67% uh, based on their standardisation protocol of what they thought was appropriate. In which setting was the penicillin being given? Is this for group um, uh, the streptococcal... Um, uh, so this, uh, I think it was both labour and caesarean section. I'd have to have a look. I think yep. it was anybody in their um, obstetric patient okay. uh, who who said they were penicillin allergy, no matter what setting they were in. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, just an interventional. I think you know a lot of our patients probably get inappropriately treated when yeah, they tell us yeah. that penicillin mm. allergy as well. Yeah, clindamycin usually is the yeah, and we we give quite a lot clindamycin, which can cause Clostridium difficile and and is not as effective in you know for some um, of the issues. Um, some of the microbes. Microbes that, that uh, you want to treat with penicillin. So yeah, there, there's a it's a significant issue. I think. Yeah. And I think that was the finding on the NAP report into um, anaphylaxis. That, That's um, right, yeah. A lot of people were A number were getting... of patients were given ticoplanin because of a presumed penicillin allergy where ordinarily they would have got the penicillin when they're exposed to a drug that had a higher rate of yeah. anaphylaxis for them. That's right. So they usually would have been given a kifosporin kif- mm-hmm. and instead they got ticoplanin and then they had an anaphylaxis and almost died. Well, no, almost died, but, you know, mm-hmm. so could do. Yeah. Scary stuff. Yeah, so I'm sure every hospital is the same, and um, I guess it goes to show if you make the effort and try and teach people, um, you can probably make things, perhaps make things uh, better, safer, and um, yeah. yeah, with a fairly simple intervention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was good. That's a good study, Mike. Mm. Yeah. Nice and practical. Mm. It doesn't involve some uh, drug company pushing some $1,000 <laughs> <No>. <laughs> drug. All, all involves is just, yeah. just taking a proper history, eh? It's good yeah. old medicine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> All right, I just want to thank you guys for coming along and um, devoting some time and uh, just another plug, El Silvio, to increase Mike's pay. <laughs> Yay, <laughs> go Roger. Okay. And then he can distribute it to the reviewers. <laughs> yeah. He'll change it into beer or something. <laughs> Our hard-working editorial board who does a lot of the reviewing. Thank you, Matt. Okay, thanks, everyone. Cheers. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. 
write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandguinecritcare.org where there'll be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.